This is UCD Business Impact. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, welcome to Business Impact. I left you at the end of 2020 toasting what has been or what was a horrid year. And I had a, a whiskey in hand literally after we interviewed the CEO of Teeling Whiskey, Jack Teeling. Well, the whiskey is gone and not much else looks too different, I'm afraid. COVID restrictions are still in place. The weather is very cold and the Wi-Fi is as dependable as an Irish summer. But hope does spring eternal. It springs out of the needle on a syringe and hopefully by mid-year or maybe the third quarter, we may well see a turnaround in the global fight against COVID infection rates. We sure, certainly hope so. Um, at the time of the recording of this podcast, cases and deaths, unfortunately, are pretty sobering here in Europe and indeed in Ireland in the post-Christmas period. Now, I do hope you enjoyed our podcast from last year and the great news, we have some fascinating guests already lined up for this year. So stay tuned on whatever your social media channel of choice is. We're going to endeavour to bring you all the insights we can on the economic business and political world. Now, former Senator Joe Biden, all the way from Scranton, Pennsylvania, in the next days will raise his hand over the Bible and swear to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States as he becomes 46th President of the United States. But who is Joe Biden? And will his extraordinary story of, I suppose what you'd call longevity and personal doggedness be clouded by the noises off stage caused by his predecessor. Now, to give us some insights is a man who knows Joe Biden well, a man who has traveled with him, and a man who was actually sworn into office by Joe Biden himself. And that is Ambassador Kevin O'Malley, the former ambassador to Ireland in the Obama administration. Kevin was and is an attorney at litigation at Greenfelder's Attorneys at Law in St. Louis, Missouri, focusing on areas of speciality like medical negligence, federal white-collar criminal defense, product liability defense. Kevin previously served as a special attorney in the organized crime and racketeering section of the Department of Justice. He was also an assistant United States attorney in St. Louis. And he is, of course, a second generation Irish American with family hailing from Westport in County Mayo. He was also part of the Joe Biden election campaign. And he's often described as something that I thought was an impossibility, a lifelong Democrat from the deepest red state of Missouri. You're very welcome, Ambassador O'Malley. How are you? I am just wonderful, Emmett. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. And as I described you, a Missouri Democrat, you are somewhat of an endangered species. Tell me a little bit of what it's like to be uh, to be a Missouri Democrat. Um, I, it's true. I live in Missouri, which is a is now a red state. It. I grew up in Missouri as a totally blue Democratic state. It changed um, gradually over time. Um, starting with the Reagan administration and his emphasis on the social issues, which really tend to divide people. Um, and it's drifted uh, redder and redder over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, I hope to, that it will be, um, we can get it back to purple before too long. But the, the divide is really in the city and the difference between this, the, the city and the, and the rural areas. Where I live in St. Louis City, it's it's probably, uh, probably uh, 
78 or 79 percent uh, voted Democratic uh, in the in the recent presidential election. And if I drove uh, an hour south or an hour west here, of here, um, I would find myself uh, in a very Republican area. It just turns out that there are more people living in the rural area of Missouri than there are in the urban areas of Missouri. So Missouri is a red state. Now, Kevin, uh, when I talk to you on this podcast, we are uh, put a, a bit of a health warning down because events in the United States are just so dynamic at the moment. News is literally, literally changing on the minute between yes. impeachment bids and so on. So I just want to give our listeners uh, that health warning that when this was recorded just before um, President Biden, President B. Biden is inaugurated, there was a lot going on. So we'll just uh, kind of put a warning down so that things are moving very fast. I wanted to talk, though, a little bit before we get into the meat of the politics, a little bit about your own sure. background. Um, you've had a very interesting career. Certainly the Department of Justice uh, period sticks out, racketeering and so on. I can uh, um, presume you were dealing with some interesting characters in that phase of your work. But you've been a, a very leading authority on a whole range of areas in the law system of the United States. Can you just give me some idea about your career as a lawyer before we go into the politics, which is, will make up most of this interview that we're going to conduct? So without the, without the legal career, there would have been no political offshoot here at the, at the very end. Uh, although I was always interested in politics, um, I was never a participant. And as a matter of fact, when I was with the Department of Justice, our law specifically forbids people uh, working uh, for the Department of Justice to be engaged in political activity. But um, the, the Department of Justice, my first position after law school uh, was in Washington, D.C., uh, which makes the events of recent days even more compelling for me uh, because I lived in that city and passed by the Capitol in the White House uh, almost every day. It allowed me a chance to to move from St. Louis to Washington and, and from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, California, and from California to Arizona, and then finally back home. So I've had a, it gave me a chance to live all over the U.S., plus uh, try some really interesting cases, and um, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful career before President Obama asked me to, to, to move to your shores. Now, you were here in a very interesting period. You, you finished up just as President Trump was being inaugurated, and you are described as, as a close personal friend in a number of the biographical material I've read of President Obama. What, what was the transition like for you as somebody who's a very, very decorated trial lawyer, moving from that world into the diplomatic world? And for our listeners' benefit, obviously, there's a different system in the U.S. when it comes to choosing diplomats. Here in Ireland and in the U.K., they tend to be career diplomats. Um, so you obviously were engaging with people who were diplomats for 30, 40 years. So how was that transition from the, 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 the legal world to that diplomatic world? Did you find that easy or, or was it difficult? Uh, I, I have to confess that uh, come joining the diplomatic world and then moving to Ireland was, um, was absolutely a wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful part of my life. The um, clearly in the litigation world that I lived in here in the U.S., there was a lot of conflict and confrontation, and um, you know trials can be done very politely, but they're nonetheless done um, you know adversarially. Uh, coming as the United States ambassador to Ireland is uh, maybe the polar opposite of that. Um, the United States and Ireland tend to be politically joined on many, many issues. And of course, there's the shared DNA uh, between Ireland and the US. 
uh, where where together personally we 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 seem to uh, we seem to get along quite well. So it was a really a very different life for me and for my wife, uh, but but really a, a very very pleasant one. And in terms of those links, the the relationship has got a little bit more spiky between Europe and the US. So you, you were sort of uh, maybe privy to some of that uh, in the 2016 election campaign when things like NATO and so on came up. But generally, uh, you are correct. The relationship between Ireland and the US has been very, you know, very rarely bumpy. You know, it's been pretty tranquil. Both countries have mutual respect for each other. You know, when American presidents come here, they're generally, you know, literally, literally mobbed. You know, there's literally crowds in college green and so on. And, and sometimes I think when American politicians come here, they're almost surprised by that reaction because it sometimes contrasts with other kind of parts of the world where they're, they're not received as hospitably. Were you conscious when you came over here that we all are a little bit obsessed by American politics? Was that a bit of a shock to you personally when you encountered, you know, colleagues in the diplomatic service, politicians, media people and so on that we're all, we drink so liberally from the, the, the well of American politics? So I had been to Ireland as a tourist um, before, before I came as ambassador but I, I was never uh, engaged as I was, um, you know, as, as so deeply as I was when I actually lived in Ireland for those years. Um, I would say that Ireland, the Irish people are obsessed with American politics. Um, I think that I think that medication would be a really good idea. Uh, <laughs> it, it's really from from the cab drivers um, that all of my relatives encountered from their arrival. Uh, at Dublin Airport, to um, to the uh, to the people of, in the diplomatic corps, to people I would meet on the street, people uh, the Irish people have been have this fascination with American politics. And I think part of that is there's so many people that have relatives here in the U.S., but it's just as I said, the, the shared DNA that goes between Ireland and the U.S. is is really a wonderful thing. It's it's like we have no. We have no relationship with any other country like we do with Ireland. Now, my introduction, um, Kevin, talked a little bit about what's happening with COVID at the moment. When me and you are talking at this moment in time, cases are daunting, literally yeah. daunting. In Ireland, I know the US is, is struggling as well to contain um, this outbreak that began way back in February, March, depending on where you were in the world. How has it uh, affected your own life? I know you're based down in that wonderful city of St. Louis, but you are in, a, in an area and certainly a state that has been under pressure as well with cases. Could, could you give me some idea of what it's like where you are? It's, it's uh, very confining. Um, I mean, like uh, Ireland has had a number of lockdowns and I think um, uh, been looked at it in a, in, a, in a more mature way than the United States has. We, we have had, um, I think, a failure of leadership at the top, um, which has caused us to f- fracture even further and to make a response to a pandemic, a political statement. And that's really made it more difficult for us. Clearly, the, the uh, development of a vaccine as quickly as it has been done is absolutely a, a wonderful phenomena uh, that all of, us are, um, all of us are pleased with. Um, you couldn't help but be pleased with um, the, how this vaccine is being distributed or actually not distributed at the moment uh, is really a terrible situation. And I, I, I look for better things in, uh, in, the, in the next administration. 
Now, now that political system in the US has been stressed by, as you said, the pandemic on one hand, but also other events have been swirling around scenes on our TV screens, which really were extraordinary as the Capitol building was, I suppose I'd describe it as being invaded by a mob. Uh, um, you know, yeah. people, people were killed. Let, let's, let's say that. And um, nobody True. thought they'd see this uh, before. I'm sure you didn't expect to see it in your lifetime either. I mean, is this uh, your reaction to that event in particular? Is this kind of the outworking of a certain process of the Trump presidency, or is it a much wider thing than that? What do you kind of you know drive at the roots of this? What are the causes of that event? We can obviously analyze the event on the day itself and security lapses and so on, but how did we arrive at that point in the first place, in your opinion? The horrific events that occurred, um, there's no way to describe it to an American um, or nobody described by an American other than horrific. I mean, as we, that's the seat of our government. And to watch this mob uh, swell through there is, um, you know, it, it, it still hasn't been fully digested yet by any of us. Um, and and there, there are clearly going to be facts that need to be established as to how and when and all of that. But um, it is clearly an outgrowth of a number of things, um, mostly uh, tied to Trump, but Trump wasn't the instigator of all of this. this. Some of this has been seething in the U.S. for a while. Uh, but he certainly was someone who, who wanted to, to, um, to ride that tide, and, and he did. He went too far. He realizes that now, and, um, and I guess he'll pay the consequences. You know, we're, we're still talking about the first draft of these events. There are a lot of things that need to be known, uh, and it'll take us a while to sort it all out. But clearly, this was a terrible, terrible, terrible assault on our democracy, where an armed mob went into our capital in order to to stop a constitutional obligation of our Senate and our House of Representatives. Uh, it wasn't just the invasion of the building itself, which was bad enough. It was during a moment of uh, what used to be sort of an administrative ministerial process, but nonetheless a, a, an important one for the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, it was horrific. And Kevin, do, do you think one of the things we, we've all done, both uh, Europeans and also Americans, is underestimated what the Trump presidency would be like? And, and what I mean by that is when the election 2016 was over, a lot of commentators said President Trump would, would become presidential. A lot of commentators said, you know, there would be checks and balances put on his presidency that would mean that a lot of the disruptive elements of his presidency would kind of be submerged. We wouldn't see so much of that. That didn't really happen. And I just wonder, did we fall into the same trap with this attack on the Capitol in the sense that people just didn't see it coming? They just didn't think it would go that far. They just didn't think that President Trump would push the issue of the election results to the limits that he did. Do you think a part of this is all, all of us, you know, globally almost underestimating how far this whole thing would, would carry the American public? So I wouldn't be too self-critical on, on this. I mean, I was in Ireland on the night of the election and I stayed, um, as, was, as did the other ambassadors, until about the time of, of the Trump inauguration and then came home. Everyone thought that he would uh, become more presidential, if not presidential, at least more presidential, and move to the center, because that's what people who have been elected president of the United States have always done in my lifetime and, and, in, and in actually in the, in the last hundred years. 
Uh, Trump has been the exception to everything, and he got worse as time went by. And I think history will record, although we're still, as I said, in the first draft of all this, I think history will record that one of the things that that Trump did, um, which was so destructive to the United States, and, and I'm hopeful, hopeful that it'll just be temporary, he abolished so many of the guardrails that we had set up the unspoken things that presidential candidates and presidents have done over the years, which are not part of our Constitution, but protect our Constitution, so that uh, these guardrails are set up so that we're not constantly hitting against our Constitution and our laws because, because they're delicate things and you don't want to be bounding up against them constantly. So these guardrails are there. Simple things like, you know, there is no law that says that a president must, um, there is no law right now that says a presidential candidate must disclose his, ha- his tax returns. And, but everybody has done that in, in, in recent history. And had Trump done that, maybe he wouldn't have gotten elected, or if he would have gotten elected, a lot of issues would have been resolved. Um, and it, it set us on a, on a crazy course. Uh, and the, the disrespect that uh, Trump and his enablers have had for the truth uh, is a terrible, terrible thing that, um, you know, hopefully is temporary. But, uh, but I said when, when he was first elected, I, uh, that I thought the biggest victim of his presidency it would be truth. And I still, I still think that's the case. We want to look a little bit at, into the future now. We can reflect yes. for hours, I suppose, on, on the Trump four years, yes. uh, probably a few days, actually. But I suppose I want to put the two pieces together. Obviously, you know, uh, people who are listening to this, uh, they'll either be listening to it as President Biden has been inaugurated, is about to be, depending on what time they download the podcast. But sure. I'm kind of wondering, do you see Trumpism, whatever happens with Joe Biden, and we'll come on to him in a second, but whatever happens to him, do you see Trumpism kind of lingering on the stage, um, you know, whether it's through Donald Trump, his family, but that kind of what we call an ideology, because it is almost a set of beliefs, Trumpism. Um, do you see that lingering on, or do you see over the four years of the Biden presidency, it will kind of wane, or what, what's, your, what's your thinking on that? So I think it's very hard to predict. Um, the, there is no Trump or Trumpism ideology. I think that's the first thing. To, there's a cult uh, but but no political ideology. Um, you know the 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 attempts of the establishment Republican Party to embrace Trump. Uh, you know a party of uh, free trade and and respect for law enforcement uh, and, and has has embraced uh, this cult of Trump, which is anti law enforcement, anti our intelligence community, uh, anti uh, free trade. Uh, I I think that the cult is in is in jeopardy whether it survives us or not i mean i think we'll know in the next year or so uh whether or not there's enough strength there to uh proceed on we'll also know we'll know more about the facts of you know how 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 was this assault on our on our democracy orchestrated and what role trump and and his other enablers had in it and i think that'll make a big difference because people in the us have been shocked by this this is really a, a big event and it'll it'll go some way into determining how much of trumpism continues I mean, you were in this slightly fortunate position when you worked with the Obama administration that the two opponents that he faced in John McCain and Mitt Romney, 
they, they essentially took their beatings, they conceded, and they sort of moved out of the road. And, and you know, they, they were obviously active politicians afterwards, but they, right. weren't, they, weren't, they weren't sort of lingering on. Do you, do you think President Biden, uh, about to be President Biden, do you think he'll get that free run, or do you think he's going to be operating in a, in, in a different world? What uh, Senator McCain and uh, Governor Romney did was what every other candidate has ever, is unsuccessful candidate has ever done. They they, it's you know terribly difficult for these people to to stand and to concede and to admit defeat. They're they're always um, you know proud uh, men um, who've worked very very hard uh, on a campaign. It's very difficult, but everyone has summoned the strength and the uh, and the courage uh, and the and the class to do it. Trump cannot do it. He's an ill person and uh, and can't do it. Will that will that impede? Uh, President Biden, no, he he is. Um, if you if uh, you, as I look at his uh, his speeches that he's given over the last couple of weeks as he's rolled out his cabinet choices, I mean they've been pitch perfect. I mean he wants to proceed on with um, with what the agenda um, which will be best for the American people, and unfortunately the impeachment of, of President Trump is gonna impede that a bit, uh, but uh, but he, he's very focused on where he needs to go and where he thinks uh, our country should go, and he's assembled this great group of people to help him get there. Now, Kevin, you know Joe Biden, uh, and you can tell me and our listeners how well you know him, because that's you know up to you to explain, but as a man that you do know, I mean, you look at him, he seems an avuncular man, he seems a warm man, he's certainly very likable, even his political opponents don't charge him with being unlikable. So all of the things that we see on our TV screens, he seems a very amenable character. Uh, can you give us something a bit more than that, though, and just give us some sense of Joe, who is Joe Biden and what kind of president and what kind of man we can expect to see and interact with over the next few years? I'll be happy to expand on that, but let me, and I hope this isn't too disappointing, The what you see on the TV screen is what you get. That is Joe Biden. Yeah. I, I've said this many times before, uh, there is no public Joe Biden and a separate private Joe Biden. The same Joe Biden that you see on the TV screen doing the interviews, uh, giving a speech, um, walking down the street uh, during the campaign uh, is the same Joe Biden that would sit in the ambassador's residence in Dublin, and he and I would have coffee in the morning before we went out and did the day's events. Um, he was the same person on the TV that would be sitting there at Deerfield at night, and we'd, we'd you know, have coffee and be talking about things. There is no public or private Joe Biden. It's just him. So I can honestly tell your listeners that they already know this guy. There is nothing that's going to be different than the impression that he's already made on them based upon what they've seen on the television. I mean, he'll have to make major decisions in real time, you know, which is having participated in this now, I understand it a little bit better than I did before, is people can stand on the sidelines and, and be critical of this, that, or the other, but an American president has to make decisions as they come up, sometimes without having 
without being able to have all of the facts necessary and certainly having you know time to maturely reflect on things. But President Biden will make his decisions based on, one, on his own character, which is a caring, compassionate, decent guy. And he'll make them based upon his own instincts in that regard, plus advice that will be given to him by the people he's assembled around him, who you can see are all people he's known for a long, long time, who know him, he knows them. Um, you've probably noticed um, that most of the people that President-elect Biden has selected uh, know each other. Uh, they've known each other for years, um, which is tremendously helpful in putting together a big government like ours. And most of them already know their portfolio. So I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a sane, coherent, a cogent um, government that President Biden uh, will run for us. And Kevin, we tend to be terribly parochial and, and selfish uh, here in Ireland about where this all means for us. Um, a few million people on an, uh, a rock on the, the western edge of Europe is not necessarily top of President Biden's uh, agenda list. But nevertheless, um, there will be events, there will be certain opportunities and threats in the relationship between Ireland and the US like there always is. How do you see Ireland sitting and that sort of Irish-American relationship under President Biden? We know he has um, deep family connections back here, but, but how would you sketch that out? I mean, you, you've been in the, the middle, you've been the bridge between the two countries before. Um, what, should we be worried? Should we be excited or enthusiastic? Where would you uh, characterize where we should be as we uh, approach these next few weeks? So I can tell you without any fear of contradiction that uh, what you've described as a rock is a rock that, uh, that uh, President Biden loves. He uh, was at his happiest that I've ever seen him uh, as we went through Ireland when he came to visit us in 2016. And he, was, he had been to Ireland many times, uh, passing through, you know, mostly at Shannon Airport, where the planes would refuel and, and head on back home. But he, the, but he wanted to do Ireland as a tourist this time, and it was, it was a working vacation, but he brought his whole family. He brought his sister, his brother, um, his children, his grandchildren, and they spent an entire week in Ireland going from County Louth at uh, Carlingford, where we found some, uh, there were some relatives up there from the Finnegan branch of the Biden family, and then we went to Ballina. Uh, in County Mayo for the Blewett side of his family. And um, uh, he, he was happy. He, he just thought this was the best thing in the whole world. The Irish people made a huge, huge and uh, favorable impression on him. Um, and which just was a, the capstone of this wonderful relationship he's had with Irish literature his entire life. Um, those of us here on the, in the U.S. have learned more Seamus Haney poetry from Joe Biden than we have from uh, from almost anyone else. He can't give a speech without uh, you know quoting Yeats or Haney or, um, or other Irish writers. I think you will find somebody who is very proud of his Irishness, looks upon Ireland as a um, uh, as a as a real warm and important relationship to his life and to our country. You're in good shape. And Kevin, do you have any concerns, again, from our side about the, the business relationships there? There's absolutely vital um, foreign investment and trading links established over many decades. 
President Trump talked a little bit about, you know, reshoring some American overseas investment back in the States. I mean, do you, do you see that being a speed bump between the two countries or, or, or do you think that's a bit overblown? I think it's overblown. I, th- I think that there has to be, I mean, I think it's going to happen just not in Ireland. I think it's going to happen for, you know, all kinds of multinationals. There has to be some sort of a cohesive, coherent um, tax policy that, uh, that that's fair to everybody. But vice, then Vice President Biden saw um, the vitality of uh, the uh, of American multinationals in Ireland. He saw what they do uh, f- for the creation of jobs, uh, for the establishment of a of a firm and prosperous middle class, uh, and what that does to family life. I mean, these are all these are all hugely important things to uh, to Joe Biden. He is. He, as I said, what you see is what you got. And what you see is a family man who, who understands the value of, uh, of, you know, what parents do for children and children do for parents and, and, uh, and, that's, and, and what these sorts of jobs and, and companies can do to, um, to make life better for everybody. And we can broaden that out a little bit, I suppose, Kevin, as well, into the wider world beyond, um, as I, I, I <laughs> unfairly called our, our little rock here, um, looking at the likes of China, Europe, a lot of these other relationships that don't necessarily feature very prominently in U.S. presidential campaigns. Uh, China is probably a little bit of an exception. Um, President Trump really targeted that relationship. You know, he pointed out that um, the U.S. was doing a, a very, very steep um, balance of payments deficit with China. He wanted to try and correct that. We had tariffs and so on. I mean, do you see uh, Biden presidency? I don't want to land you in any trouble on the policy frontier at all. So please answer this question in, in whatever way you like. But do you see the, the stance of the Biden administration to the outside world, particularly the other kind of emerging superpowers, whether that's China, but also you have, you have India coming through strongly as well. Do you see his, his kind of stance in those areas being quite different from President Trump? Or do you think it's just the packaging and the language around it that might change? No, I think I think you can anticipate. And again, I, I'm not involved in this, so I'm I'm looking at this uh, as uh, as an outsider. But I think you'll see a dramatic change in how things are done. Wh- how that translates into specific policies, I I don't think anybody knows yet. Uh, but 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 I think just by just by my statement that that um, the Biden administration will have a cohesive, coherent, cogent foreign policy is a tremendous uh, change from what we've had up till now, which is sort of a tw- Twitter-driven, uh, how, how is your gut feeling, a reaction to things. You know, what, what that means to substantive policy remains to be seen, but, but I think that no one is going to say that that President Biden has been acting, um, you know, in, in anger or um, in in one-upmanship or uh, or whatnot. Uh, he, it, it, what he does will make sense and will be part of a plan. And, and that brings me on to the the tone of politics. It's become so acrimonious, you know. It, it's so divisive. I mean, you just go on Twitter for five minutes and. If you look at anything in American politics, it's just it is poisonous. It it is literally poisonous. Now, what we have to try and disentangle, I suppose, is is that the Trump period in office did that sort of accelerate that something that was going on before that, or is it the direct result of the the Trump period? We don't really know because we haven't moved into the the post Trump phase. 
But do you see the tone of American politics changing on the back of, of the new administration coming in? I think if the tone of American politics is going to change, now is the time that that will happen. There, there is no better disciple for the proposition of civility uh, and decency in government than, than President Biden. Now, I mean, I, clearly I am a biased guy here. I, I've, I've spent the last um, year and a half uh, working on the campaign to, to have him elected. So uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, disinterested in this. But one of the reasons I felt that I could work on this campaign is because this is exactly what America needs right now. We need someone who can, who's mature enough, uh, experienced enough, uh, and wise enough to, to put the pieces back together again. So if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now, whether or not whether or not the people who, um, who, who feel that Trump is taking them somewhere are going to wise up and find out that this was just a, a, a bad hole to go down, uh, that I don't know. But I, I firmly believe to my, the bottom of my soul that uh, President Biden will try uh, to reach out you know, many Americans would will tell you uh, if they thought about it that people who supported um, who are Democrats who did not support President uh, Trump will say that they just haven't had a president for the last four years. He, Trump never made one single effort to do anything other than to solidify this base of his. Um, president Biden will not be that way. He 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 views himself as an American president and will. Um, try to reach out and and make sense uh, and make make uh, reasonable accommodations um, with the opposite with the uh, with the Republicans um, and I only hope that they're smart enough to to accept that because that's where the future of our country is. Yes, because he he's often presented as a very clubable type of individual, somebody who is. is a consummate deal maker. Um, the critique I do read in the American press is, is, is say, I sometimes see people writing that the world that Joe Biden so excelled at, that that world is no longer there anymore. You know, like Mitch McConnell is there, Lindsey Graham is there, some of the, the kind of people that um, Joe Biden would have been opposite for many years. But they, they are now influenced by a different force, as you were saying, this base uh, that's out there. Or do you think, you know, and you know them from where you live, you know Republicans, you're in a good position to give us a take on this. Do you think these kind of politicians can be brought back around to a more bipartisan approach? Or do you think they, they'll just spot the, the, the possibility of a primary challenge and, and the Trump people being out there and being hostile and so on is the main thing they're worried about? Or do you think they can kind of be brought into the, the middle ground and a deal can be done on the various issues that America needs to confront? So I think we're going to find the answer to that very quickly. You're going to see um, uh, probably on January the 21st, um, the day after uh, the inauguration, if not um, a few days after that, President uh, Biden will introduce legislation uh, regarding uh, COVID relief. And behind that, there'll be some uh, legislation regarding um, infrastructure that that needs to be done here in the U.S. Things that people of reasonable minds can agree on, and it will be up to um, it will be up to the Republicans uh, in the House of Representatives and the Senate to be reasonable about things. And I think that President Biden will not let the tail stand in the way of 
a, of an agreement which will be beneficial to to Americans. And so we're going to get to see from the from the opposing party, from the Republicans, very quickly whether they're they're serious, whether they really want to help America, or uh, whether we're going to revisit that damnable statement that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell made, uh, or Minority Leader then um, made at the uh, time that President Barack Obama was first inaugurated, that his his primary legislative agenda was to make uh, President Obama a one-term president. So we're going to get to see the color of their money, as we say, very quickly on that. I'm hopeful. I, I, I really, I really want this to be a step where where the the Trump mob has so disgraced itself that this is a way for establishment Republicans, people who just want a smaller government, lower taxes, less regulation, the normal things that we we have been arguing about in this country for a hundred years peacefully um, and actually with some decorum and respect for one another, whether or not that, uh, that group can take over. I hope so. And listen, we might see you back here again in the Phoenix park, maybe. <laughs> uh, I don't, you, you won't see me in the Phoenix park, but uh, I have, I have always enjoyed, I've been back to Ireland many times, um, many times for, for business related activities. I, I love going back to Ireland. Uh, I haven't been back since COVID, but I, it'll be uh, my first trip uh, once, once we're all back to normal. Okay. Well, listen, we look forward to it. Ambassador Kevin O'Malley, thanks for the insights. Uh, better days in American politics lie ahead. And they may even look uh, lie ahead as well when we get on top of COVID as well. So the year ahead, one thing it's going to be is interesting. We'll know in the next few weeks, as you've outlined yourself, which way the other party is going to twist on the Biden administration. And from there, we'll be able to progress. Thanks very much for the insights and thanks for coming on the podcast today. And all the best, Emmett, to you and to, and to your listeners, the wonderful people of Ireland.